Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of our sponsors, including Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V dot com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 198 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Edwin May about the research he has done into psychic phenomena. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Dr. Edwin May has spent more than 40 years doing parapsychological research. Last week, Jimmy started discussing his findings with him. And this week, Jimmy will continue the discussion, including asking Dr. May about some of his most unique views. So what are Dr. May's proposals? What role does precognition play? And what on earth is an entropy bomb? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, Dr. May has appeared on Mysterious World before. Where should listeners go to hear his prior appearances? In episode 177, Dr. May told us about his career working on the government psychic spying program, which came to be known as Stargate. And last week in episode 197, he and I began discussing the research he's done into psychic functioning. And by the way, special thanks to remote viewer Jimmy James from upstate New York, who helped arrange these interviews. Where can listeners go to hear about the faith and reason perspectives on psychic functioning? Psychic abilities are thought to be weak, natural abilities that are part of human nature. For more information, listeners may wish to go back and check out episodes like episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science, episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing, and episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. As we covered in those two episodes, Christian thought and Catholic tradition in particular recognizes a place for weak, natural human abilities like psychic powers are claimed to be. In fact, doctors of the church like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas believed in psychic abilities that today would be called precognition and psychokinesis. Whether humans have such weak natural abilities is thus a matter for scientific studies to figure out, so you can check out both past and future episodes to get a sense of what the current scientific evidence says and make up your own mind. And what particular topics will we be hearing about in today's episode? We'll be talking about a hypothesis that Dr. May has that all informational-based psychic functioning may actually be precognition or involve precognition. So you could explain things like telepathy, remote viewing, and what's called micropsychokinesis in terms of precognition. We'll also be discussing what experiments have suggested about whether precognition reveals what will probably happen in the future or what will definitely happen in the future, which has big implications for whether you could avoid things that you don't want to happen. We'll be talking about what studies have suggested about whether people may be using psychic functioning all the time in their daily lives without realizing it to do things like avoid train wrecks or airplane crashes or to make good business decisions. We'll discuss attempts to use psychic abilities to make money, such as betting on sports. 
We'll discuss what kind of people tend to have stronger psychic functioning and what factors seem to affect it. For example, some studies suggest that the rotation of the Earth with respect to the center of the galaxy seems to affect psychic functioning. Some suggest that fluctuations in Earth's geomagnetic field affect it, and some suggest that changes in the level of entropy at a target site affect it. This led to the development of what are called entropy bombs to increase psychic functioning. And we talk also about the quality of parapsychological studies compared to the standards that are used in other fields of science. In this episode, you use a few terms that may help that it may help the listeners to hear defined up front. So what is Gansfeld? Gansfeld is a kind of sensory deprivation technique that's used in some psychic experiments. We talked last episode about how it originated, but for people who haven't heard that, in short, a researcher using Gansfeld will try to decrease the visual and audio stimuli that you're receiving. To remove visual stimuli, they put translucent covers over your eyes and shine a red light in your face, so all you perceive is a featureless glow. And to remove audio stimuli, they put headsets over your ears and play white noise through them, so all you perceive is featureless background noise. And the idea is that by decreasing regular sensory input, it may let you focus on picking up psychic perceptions instead. And the research in this area has been encouraging. Another term you mentioned is associative remote viewing. What's that? Associative remote viewing, or ARV, is a technique where you associate remote viewing targets with particular outcomes. For example, the image of an apple might be associated with sports ball team A winning a game, while the image of a pencil might be associated with sports ball team B winning that game. After the game is over, the remote viewer will be shown one of the two pictures as feedback. If team A wins, he'll be shown the picture of an apple. But if team B wins, he'll be shown the picture of a pencil. He's then tasked before the game with trying to view what picture he will be shown after the game. He doesn't know what any of the pictures are, but if he draws an apple, the researcher will take it as a prediction that Team A will win the game. This technique is used to get around some of the problems that could interfere with remote viewing the future. For example, if you're a fan of Team B, your desire for Team B to win might throw you off and you'd get an inaccurate prediction. So associate, associative remote viewing is used instead to cut that bias out. And a final term you mentioned is sidereal time. What's that? Sidereal time is a way of calculating time based on the background stars in the sky. Normally, when we think about a day, we think in terms of what's called solar time. It takes one solar day for the sun to reach the same spot in the sky that it was in yesterday. So if the sun is at the highest point in the sky on Monday, it will be at the highest point again one solar day later. However, there's another way of reckoning days, which is called sidereal time. If you focus not on the sun, but on one of the background stars, you can measure the sidereal day. So if Arcturus is at the highest point in the night sky on Monday, 
Arcturus will again be at the highest point in the night sky one sidereal day later. The length of the solar day and the sidereal day are not the same. By definition, one solar day is 24 hours. It takes that long for the Earth to turn enough on its axis so that the sun is at the same place in the sky. But the Earth isn't just turning on its axis. It's also moving in its orbit. And that means that it doesn't take the same amount of time for a fixed star to reach the same place in the sky. So the sidereal day is a little shorter than the solar day. Specifically, it's about four minutes shorter. Uh, sidereal day is 23 hours and 56 minutes long rather than a full 24 hours. We'll have a link to a short video with diagrams so that you can see how this works. But because sidereal time is measured against background stars rather than the sun, it comes up in our discussion of psychic functioning, because very surprisingly, some studies suggest that psychic functioning goes up or down depending on how the Earth is turned with respect to the center of the galaxy. Excellent. Well, before we get to the interview with Dr. May, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Claudia S., James K., Alfredo B., Ed B., and Mary V. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And without any further ado, here's Jimmy's interview with Dr. Edwin May. Now, um... A principle that I often invoke on Mysterious World is that uh, phenomena should be taken at face value until evidence for a different interpretation emerges. You know, if I'm if I'm uh, if I wake up in the morning and and let's say I'm married and my wife has made me breakfast, I should assume she's the friendly, loving person she appears to be and is not secretly trying to poison me. But <laughs> but evidence one day could emerge that she's been replaced by an evil twin and is trying to poison me. So yeah. I, I should take things at face value, but then I should be open to evidence that would lead to a different interpretation. Um, one of your notable views uh, in parapsychology that's that's a bit unique is what could be called the precognition hypothesis, that it might be possible to explain all psychic functioning in terms of just precognition. So here we'd have these different phenomena like telepathy, remote viewing, psychokinesis, evidence for the survival hypothesis. But you would propose that it we may have evidence that really all of those different phenomena that appear to be separate should really be explained just in terms of precognition. Tell me how that would work. Let's take the case of telepathy. How would telepathy be explained by precognition? Okay, it gets back to that grumpy talk I gave uh, from the PA, Parapsychology Association, that uh, we don't know when and where what the origin of the information actually is that you report in your in your telepathy experiment. So let's suppose you were a student 
and a ter terrible student, and you're about to have an exam, but you're really clever at picking locks. So you break into the professor's office and you take your cell phone and you photograph the answer book for the upcoming test. Boy, could you nail that test, right? By peeking into the answer book in the, in, in, in present time, but it's in some sense your future after you take the exam, you already know the answer. So it's that analogy that if it were possible, and, it's a, and if that needs to be explored, that you could use your precognitive ability, any experiment, any experiment, if it's an experiment, by definition has an answer book, the result of the experiment. And if that answer book, you have access to it by precognition, then at least it is a possible possible way of getting the information. How would it work in telepathy? All right. I can do one telepathy experiment with you right now for your viewers. And the guarantee is not precognition. Okay, Jimmy, I'm thinking of a number between one and a million. Would you tell me what it is, please? 500,000. I whip out my pistol and I commit suicide right here. I carry it to my grave whether you got that right or not. If I, in fact, say you got it, right? You got the right number. So when did you get the information? Did you get that out of my brain, which is a possibility for sure? Or did you get it from the future experience of being told what the answer was, the answer book? Now, we propose, in fact, we wrote a paper called Collapsing the Problem Space of Psi. That if you have to have a different model for precognition, for clairvoyance and um, survival after bodily death and all these other interesting things, which we're all interested in, and all of that might be right. Let's take survival after bodily death. Uh, Ian Stevenson, uh, a fellow who uh, spent his career as a medical doctor at University of Virginia, looking at survival after bodily death cases, reincarnation cases. I'm telling you, you read some of that stuff and it's done. It's really brilliant work. But Stevenson himself would say, wait a minute, there's another mechanism that could be operating here. And in those days, he called it super psi. In modern terms, it's called living agent psi. He was unable to separate out the experience of talking to a, uh, a disincarnate entity or getting in, or somebody is experiencing reincarnation from a distant, previous disincarnate entity, getting the information that way or from using super psi as a way to getting the data. And he did not know how to separate that out, nor do I right now. So um, the idea in, in the case of telepathy would be, I'm not actually reading your mind, I'm precognizing what I will later learn in the future about what yeah. you were thinking. Similarly, in the case of uh, of, of evidence of, of reincarnation, let's say, um, I'm what I or talking to a departed spirit. Let's say the departed spirit, I think, is telling me the answer to a question. I'm I may not actually be talking to a departed spirit. Instead, I may be viewing the future where I, where I will learn the answer to that question through some other means, and I'm just attributing it to a discarnate spirit. Correct. It's a little more complicated, even. Um, a guy by the name of Gary Feinberg back in the 70s was a physicist at, uh, at, um, in New York at a major university there, and he said precognition is remembering a future event. 
And he was then proposing, and it was sort of a little bit of what you had to say, that you yourself have to experience the answer book. Turns out that doesn't necessarily been true. And there's some a really clever experiments that show that's not true. So the answer book, for example, we did a detailed study, really pain in the butt. I'm not going to go through the protocols because it put you and your listening audience to sleep. Uh, we want to know the degree to which feedback in somebody's future, how that affected their remote viewing. We would display the feedback sometimes subliminally where the person wasn't even aware of it, but at least the subliminal information was getting to them. And some fraction of the studies, the, the, there was no feedback to the participant himself or to anybody else. I was the judge in that experiment, and I had to make analyses of looking at the potential targets and pick one. I had no idea what the answer was. I was hidden from me. In fact, all humans were hidden from the answer. The only place where the answer book existed was down in the memory of the machine, computer. And when the whole thing, when the study was over, we it printed out the summary statistics. So we didn't know the result of any given remote viewing. We destroyed the data on purpose. Because that was the only way to make sure the humans didn't have the feedback themselves. That's right. So you're raising a very interesting point that I want to come back to. Before we move on, though, from how precognition could explain these other phenomena. Uh, let's take a look at the other two, remote viewing and psychokinesis. So in the case of remote viewing, I can imagine, let's say I'm a remote viewer and I'm asked to view a site in Russia. And one day we're going to get satellite photography about of that site, but I don't have it yet. Right. Eventually, I'm going to be shown feedback. And so precognition could explain this by I'm not really viewing the site in Russia today. I'm really viewing the feedback that I'll eventually be given of the satellite imagery of what it looks like. And Can I interrupt you for please. briefly? We did an experiment with the same idea. Uh, Jupiter, the planet, has moons go around it. And one of them, Io, goes around every three hours. And it's in such a plane that it always has an eclipse. The shadow of Jupiter always eclipses them. So we did this experiment, very clever, with one of our people to see whether they could accurately describe when the moon was half lit. That was the definition of the eclipse time. And that was 40 minutes before the data could fly to here just by the speed of, of light. It was 40 light Jupiter's, away. Yeah. Quite a ways away. So the, the opening question is, did the remote viewer who got, got it right on many trials, did he do it in the Jupiter time frame? In other words, 40 minutes before anybody on Earth could possibly know. Or where did he get the information? Turned out, it, when we had a telescope people here, uh, University of the Quality Telescope was measuring all that for us, and a day later we would show the data to the remote viewer. Did he get the data from Jupiter, or did he get it from his future looking at the chart? And what did the evidence show? Well, uh, at first it looked like he did it by sitting in Jupiter, but we, had, we couldn't prove that. But we could demonstrate that he got it from from the look, possibilities, put it that way, by the future, uh, we're looking into the answer book. Because okay. I don't know how to close that door except by killing myself. I don't know how to close that Let's door. Let's not do that. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I have a few years left. Yeah. Um, so then there's the phenomenon of psychokinesis, moving right. something or influencing something with your mind so that it's mm -hmm. different than it otherwise would be. How would precognition explain psychokinesis? Very good question. There are two types of psychokinesis. Uh, one is what's called micro psychokinesis. 
Um, it was initially invented by an engineer from Boeing, uh, Boeing Corporation, Helmut Schmidt is his name. And the first paper he published was Precognition of a Quantum Process. Um, and then the second paper and henceforth, he said, this is micro-psychokinesis. Mind is going in there, changing the bits of this binary generator. A random number generator. A random number generator. Okay, so uh, fast forward. Uh, we did, uh, Dean Radin and I published a paper. We looked at 128 published papers about this. And we could determine very cleanly, and I won't go into the technical details of it, whether that was an informational process or a causal process. And it was very clear an informational process. Okay. And the way that would work, let's suppose I have a, an honest-to-God true coin flipper, heads, tails, tails, and not a biased coin at all. And I, I flip the coin a uh, 10,000 times, and every time it lands, I write down the result, head, tail, on a long strip of paper, H-H-T-T-T-H-T-H, and so on, right? And I give you a pen, and I say, okay, Jimmy, what I want you to do, using your eyes, walk, walking along the strip of paper, draw a line so the next 1,000 flips has too many heads in it, statistically too many heads in it. Beyond chance results. Well, no, that is chance well, result. I mean, but if you just took that segment of a thousand, yeah. it would look like it's beyond chance. It's exactly instead right. of having fifty percent heads, maybe it's got ninety percent heads in that one well, stretch. That yeah, but a big stretch too much. And that's mm -hmm. exactly right. If it's a true random process, there'll be these streams. So if you could in in real life with a pen, you can actually identify those spots. What if you are pressing a button to collect data? by looking into the, your future of a burst of what would otherwise be non-random, but locally, um, uh, uh, what would normally be random, a burst of non-random stuff's coming in your near future and you press the button to grab them. And that's what the data show. Okay. Um, good. So we have this hypothesis that all of these different phenomena, despite appearances, could be explained by precognition. That's that's micro PK. We can go to macro oh, PK. Oh, then please let's go to macro PK. So macro okay. so micro PK is influencing small things like random number generators and thermistors that measure temperature and things like that. Macro PK would be something macroscopic that you could see being influenced. Yeah, the difference is macro PK. You don't need inferential statistics. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, I know of one model that I find attractive about micro PK. Uh, there was, unfortunately, the late Richard Maddock, uh, a displaced American, became a, a Danish citizen, published a magnificent paper on how macro PK would work. I mean, for crying out loud, poltergeist phenomena, things where things are flying around the room or an ashtray is flying across the table and so on. There's not enough. It violates conservation of energy. You don't have enough energy in your brain to make that happen. So what is the mechanism? All right. And he has an interesting hypothesis. That is anything this pen is being bombarded by the fluctuations of molecules in the air. It's called Brownian motion, right? Mm -hmm. And it, fortunately, it's all balanced because this thing doesn't bobble around, right? But what if I could use my PK ability to slightly unbalance the Brownian motion that isn't hitting as much on this side as it is over this side? It'll fly across the room like crazy. And, and Richard Maddock put that in hard, measurable terms. Uh oh 
And so how would precognition explain that? Um, I don't think it could, actually. Okay. I have to, I have to think about it. Uh, that is a model how it might work. I mean, if, if you catch me uh, levitating the ceiling, mm -hmm. uh, it could be your precognition because I do it regularly. And you just caught me at it. <laughs> 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 or, you know, there's something weird happening here. Mm. And you look at the as much of a skeptic as I am on PK, I leave the door open with regard to vast literatures on what is called poltergeist phenomenon. Mm -hmm. My colleague Sonali in India screams at me when I say that because she's more skeptical than I am. We'll be talking about uh, poltergeists on another episode of Mysterious World. I'm currently researching it. I don't know if it'll come out before or after this mm -hmm. one, but that will be available for listeners. Good. Now, in terms of the precognition hypothesis, uh, so it depends on the idea of some form of retrocausation being possible, because if yeah. you're learning about the future, you have to get the information from the future to the present where it can be perceived. Exactly. Um, what does now we've briefly alluded to this, but what would other physicists say today about the possibility of retrocausation? Um, let's well, mixed. I mean, the physicists that gave talks there were not parapsychologists. They said at least physics allows that to happen, whether it actually happens or not. It's a whole separate question. Most physicists uh, are concerned about it, and Sonali and I've written about it. Uh, Even famous it, ones like uh, Richard Feynman have you yeah. know, looked at this problem. Yeah, is that what gets people concerned, correctly so, is it apparently violates causality. Causality means things that happen have to happen. The things that cause them to happen have to happen first. Like this pen will not drop unless and until I open my fingers. It's not going to drop before I open my fingers in a crude way. So causality is a big question. Yet one of the uh, contributors to uh, the series of books, Extrasensory Perception, was a philosopher from Australia, Richard Corey. He gave the idea that Precognition does not violate causality because if you have a signal model, in other words, something from the future is signaling it to you and it gets to your nose before it gets into your head, uh, that part, that whole experience from the nose inward doesn't violate causality at all. It's no different than getting photons from the sun. But we would have to get some kind of signal from the future, whether it's yeah, a, a tachyon sure. or something else. And there's another problem here, and we've explored it, and so has Russ Targ. If you have access to the future, are you, like science fiction people love this, do, are you uh, condemned to experience that future? Okay. Think? Well, uh, I, it's going to depend, but um, why don't you tell me your solution? Oh, that's a sidestep if I ever saw one. Well, no. So what if, if, if what I would say when and people actually ask, ask me this question regularly, I would say, well, it depends. Um, if there is something like Stephen Hawking's causality uh, protection principle, then it will be impossible to change the past. Let's say if you're going into the past, same thing would apply to the future, presumably. On the other hand, I mean, this normally gets asked in the context of time travel. At least that's how I get asked it. Yeah, it wasn't the, being flippant about it. It's a very difficult question. So, uh -huh. Yeah. On the other hand, the other major solution is if you were to travel and change the past, then you'd just be on a branch timeline. Now, in terms of looking at the future, what I would say, because I hold a philosophical and scientific position known as eternalism, which holds that the past, the present and the future are all real from an atemporal 
perspective outside of time, which is, as a Christian, I would say that's the eternity where God is. He sees the past, the present, the future all at once. They're all real to him. That doesn't mean that um, that things within time are fixed in such a way that no freedom is involved. So I would say we can have free will and we can then make different choices that will affect future outcomes. Even if one doesn't believe in free will, but does believe in quantum indeterminacy, then the mere fact that we have a slice of space time, even if it's just the present, there are some phenomena in that space that are indeterminate until we measure them and they become determinate in the same way. The future could be in an indeterminate state that then, and this is a metaphor I wanted to explore with you, but then when the future arrives and we can measure it, it becomes, the future becomes determinate, but not until then. And so if I could somehow sense, to use a bit of physics jargon, the waveform of the future, I would know the probable future that I could then take steps to avoid if I don't like it. So that's kind of a sketch of what I would say. But what would you say? Uh, I would completely agree with your last sentence or two, uh, because I like data. We actually have data. We can actually do experiments to test this. And one, uh, there was a researcher, I think he's still with us, uh, Rex Stanford. He was a twin with Ray Stanford. I think his twin passed away, but Rex hasn't. He invented a model, unfortunately, with a horrible name called Psi-Mediated Instrumental Response. And please don't ask me what that means. I have no idea. <laughs> that was the title of the paper. PMIR. Yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, PMIR. And what he proposed is this. He said, any organism has psi-ability to look at least slightly into their future and make decisions that determine their current outcome that they would wish to have happen, would like to have happen. Now, I've had an experience like that. In fact, most of us have. Let me tell you what personal experience and then how that evolved into a model that we could test. Um, a colleague of mine, um, unfortunately, he became infamous, infamous uh, named Jay Levy, worked at the Rhine Center um, until he was caught cheating. He was a very clever guy, and he was Ooh. giving a talk in downtown San Francisco. And I was teaching physics at uh, City College of San Francisco, which was hmm, maybe without traffic, about a 15-minute drive with traffic, a 10-year experience getting through the traffic. So he invited me to meet him outside the hotel at uh, 5 o'clock, and we go out for dinner. That sounds pretty cool. So I'm sitting in my office. It's 430 I'm thinking, oh, man, it's before mobile phones. You couldn't get to them, right? And I said, well, it's four. I don't want to do this. I delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed because I didn't want to get caught in traffic. So I said, oh, he's going to kill me. I've got to go. So at about 5.30, half an hour after the time I was supposed to be there, I struggle myself and I pull up in front of the hotel. He comes dashing out of the hotel and he says, how long have you been here? I said, I just got here. Oh, thank God. I couldn't get hold of you until I was going to be late. So from the PMIR model, I used my subconscious ESP to know that if I'd gotten there at time, I'd had to sit in front of the damn hotel for an hour and a half. Mm. Okay, that's testable. Uh-huh. And decision augmentation theory was how we ended up testing it. Um, and um, it addresses the issue of free will. Um, we uh, there was a, a movie with Sandra Bullock in called uh, Premonitions, very interesting film, a lot of fun to watch. 
And the premise of that film was that she had a premonition that her loving husband was going to get killed in the future. And she sets about trying to prevent that future experience from happening. And she fails at it. He, he dies. Mm -hmm. And Joe McMonagall were filmed by uh, a group from Artifact Productions in L.A. And if you get hold of that DVD of that, you'll find he and I doing a, a real precognition experiment on camera. And then we found out why they wanted to use that is because it was to support this model about determinism. We said, wait a minute, we didn't buy into that. We signed all these release forms. I'm sorry, that goes against what our research shows, that if you have access to a future information and you don't like it, like if you're going to have a dream, you're going to get hit by a truck on the way to work, stay home. You can avoid it. And there are experiments, physical experiments we can do that show that that's the case, that you have access to probable futures. They don't necessarily have to be actualized futures. That's the hard data. And it's pretty nice because it preserves free will. So let's talk about how a little bit about how that kind of experiment works. So um, the basic idea in this kind of experiment, and I gather you did it with a dice rolling machine, is you set up a situation where one outcome is more probable than another. So there's a probable outcome that's different from what the actual outcome turns out to be. And you ask people to precognize what the result will be. And it turns out that what they will name, let's say you've rigged the machine so that the number five is like is the most likely number to come up. But there's a possibility it could be some other number. And you say, use your precognition to tell us what the what the result is going to be when we roll this die. And they will say five, because that's the most they don't know that you've rigged the machine. But that's the most probable outcome based on what you've done is it's going to be a five. And so they will name five. And a lot of the time it will be five, but some of the time it's not. And yeah. so what it looks like is they're they're not looking at the actual future. They're looking at the most probable future, whether it's actualized or not. Yes. Yeah. And that's what leads me to this metaphor of a waveform. Now, for people who aren't familiar with uh, quantum mechanics, uh, or the wave function of, of of a particle is a mathematical description where physicists will do a calculation and they'll they'll calculate certain things about let's say an electron and the wave function will tell them okay the the electron is probably in this chunk of space but it could be elsewhere and you don't know where it is until you measure it it seems to me based on your results that instead of doing a mathematical calculation to figure out what the likely future is, your precognition subjects are like sensing intuitively the wave function of the future so they can tell what's probably going to happen. But when it gets here and we can measure the actual future now that it's present, the wave function collapses. It becomes definite in one state that is probably like what they saw, but maybe not what they saw. Yeah. What do you think of that as a as a metaphor? Very good. I like to say I've never met a four I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and what are metaphors other than the mix? Uh, it comes down to the Gonsfeld. Mm -hmm. The Gonsfeld study, they have four pictures in somebody's future, not with the viewmasters. They used to do the photographs. Okay. And I argued with Chuck and never did win this argument. You were showing three wrong answers to the person in their immediate future. 
why would you do that? <laughs> and sure enough, they would pick the one they found most attractive, not the one they most experienced. And they got what's called displacement, a big problem. And we argued and argued, 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 and he died before we could resolve the question. In remote viewing, we never show anybody the wrong, the wrong target. Ever. Yeah, because it can it can if if they are viewing their feedback, you're showing them wrong information. You don't That's want right. them to have wrong information. Uh, it's a well established um, anecdote in the field that emotional targets make better remote viewing targets than non-emotional ones. And a lot of research that demonstrates that. Deborah Delanoy and her colleague, uh, Jerry Salfin, wrote a paper demonstrating very clearly in the Gonsfeld that's a judging artifact. That people, when they, especially when the participants are doing their own judging, right? It's even true when you get external judges. That if you have four pictures... And they're somewhat similar because they, in those days, did not know how to make them as different as we now know how to do. Uh, they get attracted to the one that's most emotionally pleasing to them, whether that is the correct answer or not. So uh, getting probable futures, and it's a messy thing. Uh, we did a, a study it's called associational remote viewing. I don't know if your, your, yes. your viewers are familiar with that. I'll explain it really quickly. So in associative remote viewing, what you are trying to do typically is predict something in the future, often that has it's going to be one of two options, either sports team A wins the match or sports team B wins the match or the stock goes up or the stock goes down. And what happens is the tasker will assign different images to the different outcomes. So like if sports ball team A is going to win the match, then you're going to get shown a picture of an apple. But if sports ball team B wins the match, you're going to get shown a picture of a pencil. And your job as a remote viewer is to try to discern what picture you're going to be shown. And you're not even typically, you should not be told the options are apple or pencil. You should be blind to that. But then if you uh, if you are able to correctly see I'm going to be shown an apple and you are sh- then that gives you information that, or at least gives the tasker information that sports ball team A is going to win the match on the other. And then you have to be shown the feedback typically afterwards because that's what you were trying to do is say what picture will i be shown yeah and you only want to be shown the picture for the team that did win mm-hmm. because if you're shown both it could confuse you when you were making the prediction and you could have drawn a pencil instead of an apple and yeah. given wrong information we did a a, a 30 trial session uh, experiment on sports betting exactly as you described and we have uh, a dis- technical, I won't go into it, uh, measure before we do anything about whether we invest in the sports game or not. If the remote viewing is above that threshold, it's a number called figure of merit. But we don't have to try to go into that. If, if the remote viewing is good enough to describe one of the two pictures that are different, we say to the investor, go ahead and, and bet against that team or bet for that team. Out of the 30 trials, nine of the trials met that predefined threshold. Of those nine, we won in eight of them. Very impressive. Yeah. 
Now, uh, we also did this with one of our, our subjects, a guy named Gary Langford. And it was a six-horse horse race. The same thing still holds, except we said, uh, tomorrow afternoon, Gary, we're going to take you to an interesting location here in in the Bay Area of California. Someone not associated with us, and all the blindedness was aware, would assign horse one to the Golden Gate Bridge, horse two to a barbershop, and so on. Okay, so Beth Humphrey, one of my colleagues and I, went to the, it was a quarter horse horse race. It was over in 10 seconds. And we won $300 based on the remote viewing. It's really nice. So the next day we got to Gary's house and we said, okay, Gary, let's go. We're taking you to an interesting place. He said, Sorry, uh, I'm watching. I'm watching football. Uh, I'm not going to any place. Give me my share of the winnings. <laughs> now that raises a really interesting probable versus actual future. If he was looking at the probable future, which he obviously was, because he described the location which we did not take him to. He just if he had tried, only had access to his to the um, actualized future, he should have described his living room and TV set. And someone paid us to do that kind of an experiment to investigate some of the most fundamental aspects of, of everything. So um, I'd like to, as we explore the precognition hypothesis here, you know, falsification is something that is always important for hypothesis. And I'd, I've tried to devote a little bit of thought to what could falsify the precognition hypothesis. I'd like to run some things past you and get your response. Well, I'd love, I hope you're right. I'm searching for one myself. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in the case of telepathy, now uh, you've pointed out correctly that if you ever tell me whether I was right about what you were thinking, then it could be explained by me precognizing my own future experience of you telling me that. And even if the researcher wrote it down, it didn't tell you anything. Still was a problem. Well, that, though, get correct, but that then gets us into remote viewing, because if the researcher writes it down, so the researcher knows, but I don't, I'm never given the feedback, mm -hmm. then then that poses a question of, am I doing something like remote viewing rather than precognition? So exactly. in, the in the case of remote viewing... If that's to be explained by precognition, it raises the question, what am I precognizing? Is it my own future experience or is it something else? If it's not my own future experience that I'm viewing, so I never have the feedback, then that would mean that I'm capable of precognizing things besides just me and where I am and what I experience. And that would, so I would be remotely viewing something else. Sure. And, and that would suggest that remote viewing, if it can work without getting feedback, would be something distinct from precognition, maybe overlapping with it. No, but you, you can't make that statement because you don't know in remote viewing from what time frame you're getting the data. It doesn't have to be distinct from precognition. Well, so if let's suppose let's give it a concrete form. Okay. So suppose that um, that I am asked to uh, view a target. I don't know what it is. It turns out that it's um, the location of a lost issue of X-Men number five. Okay. Okay. So I, uh, I view this target and it turns out I'm right, but I am never given the feedback. Yes, you were right. 
Um, so there's no point in my personal future timeline where I know the location of that issue of X-Men number five. Oh, Someone true. else knows it. That's true. But I don't. Correct. And so in if, if this is to be explained by precognition, I have to be able to look beyond just my own personal future experience. And if I'm looking beyond my own personal future experience to if I'm viewing something other than myself in the future, then I'm a, I'm able to view things distant from me. Yeah, and and that would thus be remote viewing. It would still be in the future, perhaps, but it's more than just viewing myself in the future. I'm viewing distant things. And and that would be remote viewing. But no one that I'm aware of in research thinks that precognition is has to be uh, things that individuals personally experience. I mean, that okay. was Feinberg's first idea. And it was a big issue with regard to remote viewing spying. Mm -hmm. Do you do you need to have a witting person there uh, who is experiencing this when, when you haven't it, it gets to the issue? At what time frame did you get the data and when and from where? Mm -hmm. And we don't know the f actual answer to that. But it's very clear that you that individuals have access to. In fact, most all of the spine data, almost all of it. Subjects never got feedback at all. I was going to make that point. Yes. They never did, or rarely they do, to protect them. And back in World War II, with spies creeping around, they never told the spies that they were really spot on. There would be one case where they'd get a clue. They say, you remember you were uh, describing before this thing? Could you go back and have another look? That gives you a clue that what you did was right. But that was rare. And we have all the data. They just It's just part of intelligence um, uh technology not to give feedback to protect people from being killed okay and so it worked beautifully that way okay so this is an important clarification then when you're talking uh, under the precognition hypothesis we don't mean just precognizing your own feedback yeah, it can exactly. be more distant things yeah absolutely okay um in terms of psychokinesis I'd have to think about now you say uh, you said, um, suppose we have a random number generator and I might be able to precognize when that random number generator is going to turn up some anomalous results. So I could say I'm going to go into the lab and I'm going to turn it on at a given time and I'm going to get my anomalous results. Sure. Um, and that it'll look like like my test subject or me is telekinetically influencing the results when it's not it's just chance exactly. so so in this case um i wonder about a couple of things now one is if it's it's going to depend on the nature perhaps of the random number generator but um i wonder about sequences that are never run and how I would have knowledge of those, you know, because I need to dismiss sequences that would be below chance or at chance if I'm going to have this effect. And so right. there, there's an interesting question there. Did you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not that we're proposing you're looking at an individual sequence. If I press it now, that's what I'll get. If I press it now, I'll get that the wrong data. I'll press it now instead. You're not sampling. You're not sampling your consciousness when when that even psychically when to press the button. You're just looking and say, oh, if I press it now, I'll get the right answer. That's the only process that's going on cognitively. Mm -hmm. You're not saying if I press it now, I'll get the wrong answer. No, but that, some kind of 
thing like that would need to be happening subconsciously. Probably, yeah. Okay. Another thing that I wonder about in this case is, um, and this is a story that there are different versions of, but in 1972, Ingo Swan was brought out to Stanford to remote view a magnetometer. And this is a, a magnetometer that was outside of his experience. A magnetometer, as the name would suggest, is a machine that measures magnetic fields. Yeah, I was and, brought in on for the exact look at that data. Uh huh. <laughs> well, you may be able to clarify exactly what happened here, because according to one version of the story, he was asked to remotely view the magnetometer, not necessarily to influence it. And in this version of the story, he says, well, because this is a this is a very big magnetometer. He was actually standing inside of it and it, the mechanism he needed to view was like under several feet of concrete in the floor. Yeah, it was and a Stanford, yeah. Yeah. And in this one, he said in this version of the story, he says, well, how am I supposed to view this uh, or how am I supposed to deal with this machine? And he decides to remote view it. And as he remote views it, it starts to behave anomalously. It starts to have uh, to have an effect. And he, what he's trying to do here in this version of the story is not affect the machine, but mm -hmm. just to view it. And if this version of the story is accurate or if parallel things would happen to where if someone's remote viewing a target, there are measurable effects at the target, like on an electromagnetic system like a magnetometer, that would suggest that more is going on than just precognition if the remote viewing is accompanied by some kind of measurable effect. Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, turns out. Entropy is involved in this big time. Um, I, you can't, I cannot gain information from you. You and I are sitting in an outdoor restaurant somewhere, and I'm gaining information. I see you smiling and all that. And how do I get that information? If you're not perturbed by some external reason, I will not get that information. That what happens is a photon hits your skin and slightly perturbs you and, and gathers information, and that comes to me. So in general, getting information about the real world of anywhere involves perturbation somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, you're proposing that maybe remote viewing, and it could be. No one's ever tested that, actually. Mm. Um, and, well, that's not true. Uh, we've done some work looking at remote Ah, The Chinese, I, I just lied to you. Uh, the Chinese published a paper. Uh, in fact, we actually talking to the researcher came to visit that remote viewing emits photons from the remote viewing target. Mm -hmm. And we spent something like $30,000 putting single photon apparatus together, and we would put a slide in front of the photomultiplier tube, and it was all you know, <laughs> hidden from photons. Didn't work. Got mm -hmm. great remote viewing and no photons coming off the slides. Okay. The third category and I, and of things that could indicate psychokinesis is separate from yeah. precognition would be macro PK phenomena so, like, like poltergeists. Absolutely. I agree. And so what do you think about the possibility that poltergeists are real? I'm convinced it is. Okay. Would that then convince you that there's more going on than just precognition? Oh, I've never said, no, 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 no. We've said that precognition only, uh, 
as a possible explanation for informational psi, telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition, and other things that use statistical inference to come to some human-centered experiment. Macro PK? That wouldn't apply to. Absolutely not. And that includes that includes poltergeist. Okay. Well, that's an important uh, clarification then. So you're not yes. saying all psychic phenomena or functioning would be precognition, but no. all that involves statistical inference could be explained this way. That's exactly right. Okay. Last category um, would be survival hypothesis. Ah. And in this one, I, I was thinking about, well, and I kind of have a sense of where you may go with this, but... Um, Will so, I survive the interview? Oh, I'm pretty sure. I'm a, I'm a teddy bear. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so we have these reports, which are now being studied by physicians like Samparnia and so forth, of people who go into full cardiac arrest. So there is no brain, there's no blood flow in the brain. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, they, when they, when they restart their hearts, they're able to say things like, while I was cardiac arrested, you were thinking about this or or I saw this thing happen or things like that. They also come back and they describe features of experience like I went seemed to go through this tunnel and I saw this realm that was very beautiful and I encountered this being who told me I had to come back and things like that. Now, in terms of you were thinking about this and I saw this happening in the room or elsewhere in the hospital while I was dead, um, the way the phenomena presents itself is this is information they acquired while they were cardiac arrested and could not have had brain function. I could explain that by saying, well, really what happened is once they restarted their heart, they got this information in a flash and just thought they had it, that they acquired it while their heart was stopped. Or before they went into the operation. Or before the before their heart was stopped. Um, so it, there would be ways on the precognition hypothesis to explain this. Yeah. My thought would be, though, that... We still have these we still have the presentation of the phenomenon itself of I got this while I was dead. And then we have these other features that can't be verified in an individual case, but we have them reported consistently across other cases of there's this tunnel that a lot of people see. There's this beautiful realm and there's this being you encounter. And I would be inclined to say, well, even though maybe this could be explained some other way, I have yet to see evidence that would insist it be explained some other way. So I'd be inclined to take it at face value and say, these people are accurately reporting an experience. What would your take be? Uh, almost the opposite. Uh-huh. Um, commonality of experience is not evidence of the experience. It's evidence of the commonality of the experience, which is really quite different. Uh, we have a culture, uh, mainly Judeo-Christian culture, mainly Christian, that that says your departed one loved ones are waiting for you beyond the white light. The white light is ingrained in us, and it's already too late for these kinds. I mean, uh, I know um, you know the Templeton Foundation. Know of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he funded 
$5 million worth of looking at uh, um, what we call it, uh, near-death experiences, which is what this category fits. And he had hired, spread that money across many different universities. And they all came to the same conclusion that this is a sociological issue, not a survival after bodily death issue. Not my statements, Templeton's itself. They publish it and go on their site and get the paper. I'll do so. Yeah. So, um, and I agree with that, by the way. Uh huh. So, um, one of your views that we've talked about is the uh, what has been called implicit psi or super psi, the idea that people have this functioning occurring a lot without even realizing it. And yeah. there's some I've seen you cite some evidence for that. Uh, what kinds of things lead you to that conclusion? I know, for example, like there is a study by W.E. Cox in 1956 involving trains. Yeah. Uh, what did that involve? Well, it's interesting. There were flaws in that study, which Jessica looked at, Jessica Professor Oss looked at it in detail. What it was this. They examined trains that had crashes. Okay. And, of course, not all trains have crashes, and even the same train does not have crashes every time it goes in that line. So what they looked at, the dependent variable they measured was what they called no-shows, people that had reservations but failed to show up to catch the train. And what they found was, roughly speaking, that a train that future crashed had increased statistically increased numbers of no-shows compared to that same train, same time of year, when it didn't crash. So, so that, one, one explanation for that, of course, is what Cox came to the conclusion, is they use their unconscious ESP not to, not to get on the train. Mm -hmm. But it's more complicated than that, because I think if I recall the paper, and don't hold me to this, it's been a while since, since I've looked at that paper, what I think he found was, at interviewing a few of those no-shows, that, are you kidding? I... I didn't go to that train. I had nothing to do with that. My cousin from Illinois was coming to visit me, so I had I couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, life got in the way to keep people doing that. Mm -hmm. Now, in modern times, uh, General Ratman, when he quit the Med Command and became a civilian, he worked. He was on the science advisory board for the FAA, Federal Aviation. He said, let's do that study in modern times with airlines. And it was at a time when you, you couldn't switch around easily. And we said, we'll do it in a classified world. The airlines said, absolutely not. They do not want to have any aspect about death statistics regarding their airlines. They wouldn't let us do it. It would have been an interesting study. It would have. And I know just how... Um reluctant airlines are to publish any information like obviously there should be certain locations in the plane that are safer in a plane crash than others they will not give you the statistics although sit in the back yeah right, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. now there's um other actually yeah one one point you have to make there that ratman said the airlines are resistant to do the single most important thing they can do to allow survival after a survivable crash not all crashes are survivable yeah and they refuse to do it you know what it is you could ignore all the other things you know trays up uh you know seat back up and all that stuff you could ignore all that in terms of statistics if they did this one thing what is it sit backwards all military ah. flights sit backwards. How often have you been rear-ended in an airplane? Never. Mm -hmm. 
(laughs) (laughs) So what happens is your seatbelts cut you in half if you have a collision like that. So the front, the back half of you is in row 34. The front half of you is in row 30. (laughs) It's really devastating. And Mm -hmm. they absolutely refuse to do that. Now, uh, Mm. um, one of the airlines has a couple of seats that face backwards. And if I'm on that airline, I sit always facing backwards. I'll tell you this, if I'm on a plane that's going to crash, I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do. I will get out of my seat, put my feet where my ass used to be, and plaster my back against the seat in front of me. Pro tip for the future. Yeah. Hopefully folks won't have to use it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In terms of... Um, in terms of this implicit psi hypothesis, now there's other evidence that's been cited. I know that you did an experiment with a remote viewer named Hella Hammond. Uh, I, the experiment involved a flashing light in another room, and yes. she was asked to to see when this light was flashing. And I understand that she didn't perceive it consciously, but you were doing oh. physiological measurements that showed that her, on some level, she, subconsciously, she was picking up on the flashing light and the information just wasn't getting up to her conscious mind. That's true. We looked at Alpha, uh, a, friend, a neuroscience friend of mine gets really upset with me when I, when I tell him, this is what I'm going to say to you. The brain is a dumb slab of meat. It can't do two things at the same time. And those two things are produce alpha rhythms, this regular 10 times a second, and anything else. Anything else you want to do, think about a wonderful experience you had, get poked in the ribs or smell something. Anything that you can do to a human being interrupts alpha. Everything. Mm-hmm. And we did a study to see whether psi interrupts us. And that got us into when psi is happening kind of problems. Now, um, so. Uh, if there was a reason I was saying that. In the case of uh, the experiment with oh, Ella Hammond. Ella Ham- Hammond, mm-hmm. right. Um, I actually analyzed that data, and uh, it, it moved around. In fact, I published it in my AAA meeting. Uh, it, the effect moved around at different uh, leads on her head. It wasn't consistent. And the Navy was so off at us with that. They said, well, you didn't, I mean, because the preliminary results were pretty interesting. Some of her, some of those leads were producing alpha reduction, all right? And the Navy said, well, one of the photons could come out. First of all, it wasn't a flashing light. We okay. said, if you have a flashing light, you've got an, e, an EM signal, electromagnetic signal, flashing light. The light was always on. What we had was a rotating wheel with a hole in it. Oh, and so the light would come out at 10. We, we couldn't do it at 10 hertz. Uh, there was a, a, a human use thing that some people are photoepileptic, and right. particularly at 10 hertz. So we didn't want to have, uh, you know, poor hella flopping around. Uh, I mean, grandma was seizure. So uh, this wheel was going like that. And when the Navy was concerned that photons would come out of the hole do a sharp right-hand turn, go down the hall, do another left-hand turn, go through two closed doors, and get into her eyes. That was more likely for them that uh, that this woman was <laughs> viewing the, the, the flashing light. But based on her brainwaves, you got evidence that she was aware of this flashing and that it just wasn't getting up into her conscious mind, which could suggest that people are using subconscious psychic functioning. Oh, I think all the time. Mm-hmm. Do. You've also mentioned a test involving uh, businessmen who were given a precognitive test without being aware of it. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, um, it's. I think this book I've got here somewhere. Um, Executive ESP is the name of the book. I don't know where the book is right at the moment. I didn't do the study. Um, what they did, and I'm paraphrasing, so don't hold me to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the 70s, it was published in 73, I think, there were kind of common uh, team-building activity of, you know, you get all your people in the sales department to come to a nice place and you have tests all day long and, what you know, team-building stuff. Catch each other falling over backwards and that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. And uh, one of the things that this guy did, Douglas Dean was the author, and what he did was he embedded a... Uh, Sub Rosa ESP test. They didn't tell anybody it was an ESP test. I don't remember exactly what it was, but if I were going to do it today, is uh, I would give them, they were answering questionnaires, and I'd have three categories of questions. Category that really had an answer. What is the capital of Arkansas? You know, Little Rock. One, yeah, right. I'm from there. <laughs> oh, very good. So you'd have you'd have a you know, multiple choice. You'd get that one right. Then you'd have a, a category of, answer, of questions, all randomly intermixed, of course, would be, okay, what does DNA actually stand for? In other words, a question that actually has an answer, and most, most people don't really know what it actually means, right? Deoxyribonucleic acid. There you go. Mm-hmm. The third one has a category of answers, are questions that have no answer to them by definition. The answer is determined after the fact randomly. Okay, what came out of that is really interesting. That is, the scores under ESP tests correlated with the executives' salaries. The better their salaries, the better their ESP uh, scores were on those subset of questions. Now, one answer to that is, roughly speaking, is you get paid the big, you get paid the big bucks by making slightly wiser decisions than your competitors. <laughs> and you do that using your ASP. And when they sampled them as to whether they believed in the ASP, are you kidding? That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. So, um, so all of that would be evidence that could suggest that people are using ESP without realizing it. And you could see the evolutionary advantage of that. I mean, if if an organism is better able to navigate its environment by sensing, you know, extra information that they can use, then they're going to survive and reproduce better. And so you could see how even evolution itself would would lead to this kind of functioning if it's possible at all. Yeah, if you're uh, back in the old days, you're there in your cave and uh, you want to go down to the creek to get some water and uh, you can't smell or hear the saber-toothed tiger that's right outside and bent on having you for lunch. If you decide not to go out there because you just don't think it's a good idea, (laughs) you save yourself as you do your lunch. And you could also see how it could be related to one's job because a job being successful in a job is key to survival and reproduction. Um, it's, it's even better than that. We've done some testing on that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, Diane, uh, was a VP of sales for a software company. And there were people that she said, you know, You've been to this this company, HP, to try to, and you know they don't want to do it. And the guy said, "No, wait, I have a different person to go to to talk, and he'd make the sale." Hmm. And that's well known in business world that there. In fact, that's how that's how the army got interested in ESP. By the way, I don't know if you know the story that in Vietnam era, 
there were wizards, their term, not ours, uh, point men. In those days, only men would go out on patrol, and the poor in front is the point man, and that the Viet Cong know that. And so they, the death statistics of point men were extremely well known. And that was a lousy job to have, because that's where the bad guys were aiming at you all the time. There were a handful of them that were well beyond their statistical limits for surviving. And they become so well known that the army had a, had a uh, what would you call it, an administrative problem on their hands. The men would not go out on patrols unless it was one of those guys. And they asked us, are they psychic? We said, oh, probably not. And they're environmentally sensitive. Someone steps on a twig, they can hear it, blah, 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 blah. Well, at least one of them was, was psychic. Mm-hmm. Joe McMonagall was, uh, was one of them. Yeah. One thing that this is a story that I've told before, some listeners will be familiar with it. I noticed and I've talked about it. In, so my day job, I work as a Catholic apologist for a company called Catholic Answers. It's a nonprofit ministry that does religious education. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we have is a radio show um, called Catholic Answers Live. It's a national radio show. We're on between three and four hundred stations. Wow. And when I'm on the show, people will call in in what's called a Q&A open forum. So basically, people are allowed to call in and ask any question they want. Hmm. And so I get asked a huge number of questions on very obscure topics, like what's the capital of Arkansas and what does DNA stand for? (laughs) And um, we even have episodes devoted specifically to the weirdest questions people can ask me. Um, And like, can you commit suicide if you're a vampire in order to protect other people? Um, The answer is more, yeah, the answer is more complex than you might think. Um, But as a result of this call in and ask anything environment, I, I never know what I'm going to be asked, but what I've found over years of doing this show, it's more than 20 years now. Um, I often find myself thinking or reading about some obscure topic, and then within 48 hours, I will be asked about that topic on the show. Wow. And going back years, I said, well, maybe God has given me a little nudge here. On the other hand, it could also be explained if precognition is real, it could be explained, and if the implicit psi hypothesis is real. It could be explained by that, that I end, I'm sensing what I'm going to be asked about. And some of the times it bubbles up enough into my conscious mind to get me to research it in advance. Well, it's it, there's a book by a well-known uh, neuroscientist called David Eagleman it's called Incognito. And what he points out in this book, he said, you know, we're all interested in there's lots and lots of books and papers written on what is consciousness, right? And everybody's got their own def- behavioral definition of consciousness and so on. But he says, you know, we can forget all that. It has nothing to do with nature of consciousness. The brain only gives you about 1% to 2% of what's going on subconsciously. That's consciousness. The stuff that it allows you to think about, you can ignore all that stuff about the nature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting idea. Now, in your research and in other people's research, there have been a few things that have been identified that may have an effect on psychic functioning that could improve it or diminish it. Um, one of them turns out to be local sidereal time. What, what, what's going on there? I don't know. I'm not sure I believe it. And James Bottiswood is the lead guy on it. Um, it's just an observable. Um, 
locus of zero time, first of all, let's define what that means. If you have a, a, a ball or the earth, there are two angles that will locate any spot on that earth. In, in, um, in geographic terms, you have latitude and longitude. Those are really angles relative to some arbitrary position. Latitude is an arbitrary position called the equator. Longitude is the international date line or the Greenwich time, right? So there's nothing magical. It's just geometry de by definition. And you look up, we, we have a sphere around us with the heavens. And each of those stars, forget how far away they are, they have two angles will identify where on that sphere is that uh, star. The technical name is called uh, right ascension and declination. Two angles, period. And if you know those angles and you have a telescope set up, you can dial those angles into your telescope and look through the telescope and there it is. You can see it. So local sidereal time then says, if you face north and south, the right ascension value of that line that's going up and down, the right ascension value of that moment is called local sidereal time. Now, uh, navigators have been doing that forever. And as you can see, if, if you're looking at uh, this, the constellation Sagittarius, there it is right there. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next night, it's Sagitt you've moved in, the Earth has moved in its orbit. So it, where you have to wait a little bit, four minutes actually, before Sagittarius catches up to you <laughs> by the rotation of the Earth. So there is a very clear relationship between actual time and local sidereal time. All right, so that's what sidereal time is. Uh, what we found was, um, if, it's a bizarre thing, truly bizarre, that there is a huge correlation uh, of successful remote viewing, and I'm gonna come back to what I mean by that, uh, at 13 and a half hours local sidereal time. That doesn't mean one and a half hours at night or in the day. Yeah. It's just the local sidereal time, and it varies depending upon what time of year you are yeah. and so on, or so, clock time. So on the, on a sidereal clock, it would be 1.30 p.m., but that may not match up to your standard clock, which is not using sidereal time. Yeah, it only lines up on September 21st, period. That's the only time it lines up. Okay. So, but at 13 and a half hours, there's this huge peak, have lots and lots and lots of data from all over the world uh, above chance. And at 18 hours, no, no sciability whatsoever, statistically speaking, at 18 hours, the effect size is zero. Now, James and I were worried and worried and worried and worried, what the hell's going on? Uh, we could not find anything to it. It gets a little more interesting. Um, the Earth, we have what is called the geomagnetic field. You know, that's what drives compasses. If you could look at it carefully enough, your compass is slightly wiggly. It's called the geomagnetic field fluctuations. And it's not doing this. It, it moves maybe once every 20 minutes. It's a very slow fluctuation. What uh, Michael Persinger noticed by looking at uh, uh, Spirit, uh, just personal experiences that have been published, that there is a huge correlation with the personal experience and the quietness of the local field variation. If a, if a field is vibrating a lot, hardly anybody reported personal experiences. If it's quiet, you get a huge reporting of it. Now, that's been looked at in the laboratory. Now, what gets really strange, that is the uh, correlation uh, goes up by from 0.06 to 0.3 at local sidereal time of 13 and a half hours. 
that's that's really interesting and it's it it leads to some kind of it leads my mind anyway to some kind of sci-fi questions because you mentioned Sagittarius yeah. and um so if at 1:30 p.m. sidereal time not clock time you're facing Sagittarius, you're also facing the center of the galaxy. It's just backwards. Oh, I'm sorry, you're facing away. Well, okay, yeah. You're looking vertically out of the plane of the galaxy at 13 right. and a half. At 18, you're staring right at the white black hole at the center of the galaxy. Right. So at 18, when there shouldn't be any, any when the psi phenomena crashes, you're staring at the center of the galaxy. Is it like there's something there that we're exposed to that would suppress this? And then when we're turned away from that, it allows psychic functioning to flourish. Well, uh, first of all, I can get more energy by rugging my pants than that's coming from the black hole. I know. Yeah. So (laughs) that doesn't fly. Mm -hmm. Well, James, this is all his work. Very clever. Dean Radin um, published an online remote viewing test with 100,000 remote viewers spread across the planet. And I worked with James, and we analyzed this data. Like in all mass experiments, there's no evidence of psi because the 1% of the, the black belters get swamped by everybody else, right? Yeah. Okay. So what, what we were able to show was that this then, as we could look at that as local sidereal time because we knew all that data. So we had a whole bunch of data of local sidereal time with no psi in it. What came out of that, uh, in fact, I was the one that told James about this, um, and it turned out to be a, a real key. Each of those participants, 100,000 people or so, had did their own judging. And the way they did that by saying, okay, uh, here are, I forgot how many, 16, I think there were, items that you could share. Off. There's water at the site, there's people and animals, whatever, those bits. Mm-hmm. So I looked at a, a, a variable I called verbo, verbosity, how, no, how verbal was somebody in these studies. You could actually measure that, right? Turns out, if you plot verbosity as a function of local sidereal time, there was an enormous, I mean, there were 12 standard deviation differences between 18 hours and 13 hours, except at 13 hours, it was suppressed People more did not talk very much. One or one or two bits different out of the 16 or however many there were compared to 18 hours. That gave us an idea what's actually happening, and we don't know why, is not uh, an enhancement at local sidereal time of 13 hours. It's a quieting of the mind to allow you to get the data instead of noisy stuff going on for increasing at a AOL. Now we went further, James, and I'm not stealing James's stuff. He's really brilliant at this. We could normalize the actual remote viewing data, which has this giant peak of 13 hours, and normalize the verbosity data, and we could compare the LST over overlaps or over. Took the remote viewing data and removed the remote viewing part of it. That's easy to do. So now you had two noisy sets. One from a large number of people, one from a much smaller north, but we normalize them. And, and Jimmy, the curves overlap each other in every single error bar possible. The best curve in anything I've ever seen in parapsychology. 
What that says is whatever the hell's going on at LST through 13 hours, we have no idea, but it's quieting the mind. Okay. Interesting. Now, in your work, uh, you realized that at some point that there was one particular type of target that remote viewers were startlingly accurate on. What was that? Um, I respond. We spoke earlier about that the S and ESP is a sensory system. And the question is, the reason we came to that is because they're like other sensory systems, things are better when that whatever it is underneath, like vision, is is changing, like flashing crop light, as opposed to a steady one. It's more z- more easily seen. Well, the thing in ESP that's more easily seen is the gradient of the entropy, the change of the entropy of the target site. Okay, so I should explain that for the listeners. So entropy is a concept in modern science that is an entropy is an expression of the degree of disorganization of a system. So if you have, uh, let's say, a, a block of ice. The water molecules are in a crystalline formation. They're tightly organized. You then let it melt, and they become disorganized. And increase of entropy. Increase of entropy. And so what modern science, among the laws of thermodynamics, is that in any closed system, the average entropy in that system is going to increase over time. And, um, And so that's why if you fry yourself an egg, you can't reverse it and turn it back into a, a, a yolk and white in an eggshell because entropy proceeds forward in a closed system. I mean, maybe you could do it if you had molecular level control, but then that's not a closed system anymore. Um, so you found that certain types of events were that viewers were targeted with involved a lot of entropy and they were surprisingly able to view those accurately. What types of events are we talking about? Well, there's two things. One is just photographs. You can compute the entropy of a photograph. It's not thermodynamic as a photograph is just a picture. But there's something called Shannon entropy. Mm-hmm. And the equations for Shannon entropy and thermodynamic entropy are absolutely identical except for a constant out front. Mm-hmm. Entropy is entropy. Mm-hmm. And what we found in the photographs, and I'll answer your question later, uh, we can compute the gradient of Shannon entropy across a photograph. And those photographs that had higher gradients of entropy, the entropy was changing, spatial entropy was changing on the on the photograph. They made much better remote viewing targets by by three hundred percent, actually, compared to ones that didn't. So, for the listener, the Shannon entropy. Correct me if I'm wrong. In a photograph, is going to be higher if it's a more complex image with more gradients between lighter values and darker values and things like that. Is that correct? The second part of what you said is correct, but not. It's not cognitively. It's not content related. It's only color patterns and and the the look. Um, I guess too too geeky. Uh, it. We can show that it doesn't depend upon whether it's a flower or a nuclear explosion. It has to do on the color saturations and how many of them and how fast they're changing just the colors. It doesn't care what the cognitive content is. Right. No. And that's what I meant by complex is on this color level 
of yeah. things. It's you got a lot, lot more variation. If it was a solid block of one tone, yeah. it would be very non-entropic. Exactly. Now we did this. I uh, did an experiment. It was funded by the Foundation Bio out of Portugal, where I wanted to look at thermodynamic changes of entropy. So uh, I couldn't get the city of Palo Alto to let me un- explode an underground nuclear weapon. Uh, that, so I had to come <laughs> that's where I was going. That was the initial thing that sparked this, right? It was nuclear involved stuff that yeah. led you down this line of thought. Yeah, nuclear and uh, electromagnetic pulses and things like that nature. So if that, you had a bunch of viewers at Stargate and you said, view what's at this underground site, and it happens to be an underground nuclear explosion. Much easier to see. Much easier to see than, oh, it's a dark well. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I was, you know, I'd love to be able to say to you, I, I chose entropy because it's related about, you know, the nature of the, uh, the direction of time kind of arguments. And mm-hmm. I can brag about it, but no, I, that was a lucky guess because if, you, if you're getting a, re, a remote viewing of an underground nuke, maybe you've got seismic feet. Or it, what occurred to me is maybe it's just that nuclear explosions are more interesting than other things, and therefore the viewers would pick up on them because they're more interested in them. But that's but that's not what your data showed. Your data showed after you studied it that it was entropy and that that applied not just to physical things like the entropy involved in setting off a nuclear bomb, but also sure. the Shannon entropy in just a photograph. Yeah. Well, the experiment I did for be all, um, we could, if you walk into a dark room and I ask you what's in this dark room, but I give you a flashlight and you shine a flashlight where you can see the, the, the fireplace over there and the, the sofa is over there and the stool is over there by shining a light in this otherwise dark room. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, we guessed that setting off an entropy bomb, so to speak would get somebody's attention like shining a light in a dark room in the remote viewing world. So what's an entropy bomb in this case if it's not setting off a literal nuke? They wouldn't let us do that. So (laughs) I had uh, 1,000 aluminum balls. um, um, Like ball bearings. Well, they're a half inch in diameter. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of research on it. We did um, three liters of liquid nitrogen. And as a liquid, when it goes from liquid to gas, that's an increase in entropy. Now, we had to be very careful. We right. didn't want the thing just, to... Just like when ice becomes liquid, that's, right. that's in, an increase in entropy. So if you have liquid nitrogen and you let it become a gas, that's a further increase in entropy. That's right. So to control that, we could control how fast it would take to evaporate three liters. We had a thousand stainless or aluminum balls in a... Uh, picnic uh, basket, you know, our styrofoam picnic basket. Mm-hmm. So we had a nice chest. A nice chest, yeah. So our, our outbound experimenter would carry liquid nitrogen or not, and on a random basis, when, when she's at a predefined uh, target, and pour, pour liquid nitrogen into this bucket, it would take eight seconds to evaporate entirely. Okay. With lots of caveats, the bottom line is that people did significantly better when she poured liquid nitrogen at the site than when she did. 
Okay. So in terms, so that's fascinating in terms of what it says on the theoretical side, and there may be ways to then operationalize that. Um, you know, if you can find ways of figuring out, could this target that we need intelligence on involve some, does it have some aspect that will involve entropy? Maybe that's how we want to phrase the tasking yeah, to be able to, to involved, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's it's really getting at toward toward the mechanism. Changes of entropy, as you know, it's the second law of thermodynamics which gives us the idea that time moves in one direction. So um, that covers the areas of uh, kind of the process, what affects this, what makes it better or worse that I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to go back to the question of sort of who is good at this. Now, you mentioned that there's a small percentage of people that there's this bell curve, small percentage of people are really good, small percentage of people are really bad. Um, You mentioned that there seems to be a correlation between salary and psychic functioning implicitly. In the business uh, world, yeah. In the business world. Um, What percentage of, uh, what what other indicators have you found or have other people found that tend to be associated with a high level of functioning? I know there have been all kinds of personality studies and stuff. What what has your experience been of this question? Well, it's a big one, and thanks for your tax contribution. The feds gave us lots of money to try to answer that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the first order, it failed categorically. Uh, there was no... Um, uh, personality tests uh, that were predictive of good side performance. Now there are so for- so it's not like introverts are good or extroverts are good. Well, I was about to say in Gonsfeld, it looks like extro- extroverts are good, mm-hmm. but uh, Chuck Hans and I agreed that that's a psychosocial issue, not a side issue. Yeah, that was my immediate thought. If I'm an introvert, I may not want to share what my experience is. You got it exactly. Yeah. So uh, that went down the tubes and we looked at n number of of non-pathological personality factors, none of them. The only thing that we could do to find people was to ask them to do remote viewing. Now, uh, we grossly underestimate, I think, how it's distributed in the population because we didn't randomly select people. We we went to um, subgroups of like Mensa people, uh, alumni from um, uh, Stanford, uh, USGS people, and so on. And we brought them in maybe 50 to 100 at a time. Mensa is a high IQ society and people yeah. who go to elite colleges, so you weren't dealing with a random cross-section of the population. Absolutely not. So of that group, uh, it's statistically an invalid thing to have a large group of people remote view the same, the same target. There's a it's called a stacking effect, and it's invalid in general. Yeah. So, but what we would do, and it was very clever where we had it, we had uh, people would respond to the remote viewing on a single sheet of paper that we had provided them, which had a carbonless copy underneath. So they could keep the top one and send the carbon copy to us. And from that, we could say, well, uh, out of this group of 106, really did a pretty good job. It's not statistically valid. We invite them back to the lab to do a series, and they had to provide an effect size of above a certain power. And of that, uh, about 1% of them met that threshold for laboratory work. Totally. Now, that's a gross understatement, and we're convinced because, first of all, it's 
uh, you know, a selected population doesn't tell you anything about, you know, the, uh, the second down the hall <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and details of that nature. Okay. So that's what we did. So the most direct test of or correlate was can they actually do psychic stuff was yeah. the best predictor. That's the only one that worked. Okay. Um, one thing that I read in uh, your paper on uh, the multiphasic model of precognition is that there may be, and this was more hypothetical, it wasn't proposed as this is definite, but that there could be some kind of association of psychic functioning with a form of hyperconnectivity in the brain where different yeah. things in the brain are correlated in an abnormal way. And you mentioned that several of the remote uh, viewing black belts that you worked with had uh, what's known as synesthesia, which is yeah. the association of different types of sensory modalities with each other. So, for example, uh, a lot the most common kind of synesthesia is called grapheme color synesthesia. A grapheme is something you write like a letter or a number. And then people who have this kind of synesthesia will associate letters and numbers with colors. Yeah. And some, Not some of our subjects, all of them were all of the. Oh, really? Interesting. OK, so and then there are other kinds of synesthesia as well. Um, so do you at this point, do you think that that is a significant indicator of possible ability? Stay tuned. Um, we have uh, there are a number of testable hypotheses in that model. And I'm working with some neuroscientists who are committed to test those hypotheses. We can actually get a quantitative measure of hyperconnectivity in the brain. What the connectivity in the brain is, how does one part of the brain communicate with another part of the brain? Let's take something really straightforward, which is easy. You have an optic nerve that leads from the back of your retina back to what's called the hippocampus in the center of your head, and then it spreads out and eventually gets to the back, to the back part of your skull, what's called the V1 cortex. Now, um, if you, there are ways of analyzing MRI data called diffusion tensor imaging, which actually plots how various parts of the brain commute with other parts, because each, each nerve bundle has a sheath around it, and around that, inside that sheath is water, and that water flows in one direction or the other. And this new form of imaging or analysis from MRI imaging allows you to tell not only that it exists, but what direction the information is going. It's really, really quite powerful. Mm -hmm. So if you do that, if you get a DTI image of the, of the optic nerve, you see those bright, false color, orange thing from the back of the retina, back to the hippocampus and forward. And you can actually see that actually happening. So you can get a quantitative measure of the degree to which there's hyperconnectivity in the brain or not. So what we're doing, my job is to find people that have no psiability. we got a whole bunch of people that do have psiability. We want to have DTI imaging. The only difference between them is psiability or not. And so, maybe so you for lucky, we'll see. So you want to find people at both ends of the bell curve so you can test them against each other. You got it. Okay. Stay tuned. <laughs> one, uh, one other thing I've heard you say and that I've heard other people say is that the people who tend to do best in this area, at least initially, 
are not either true believers or hardcore skeptics, that they're people who have a degree of openness, but they're not like wrapped up in the idea of this is this is all real and I'm a super psychic or whatever. Yeah. So that way, it's a psychological issue. And uh, I've asked uh, a psychologist who's one of our good participants, as well as a practicing psychologist and Joe McMonagall, we need to write a paper about the potential um I wouldn't. I don't want to go so strong and say danger, but potential problem associated with remote viewing. That some people, and we've had we've had to dismiss people out of the operational group at Fort Meade. We've had to let people go on our project who get into some sort of strange size. I'm not a psychologist. That they become really, you can't have them around anymore because their whole mental attitude is dependent upon. Their, their resident detriment for existing is in terms of their ability to be remote viewing. And if they get a remote viewing wrong, which happens, they blame everybody but themselves. And it becomes a real problem for us. One can imagine, I mean, based on parallels in other fields, you know, not a lot of people are really good actors. And so yeah. being a good actor is makes you kind of special. And similarly, being not a lot of people can remote view. Otherwise, we'd consider it, oh, yeah, that's just like having vision. Uh, so if you remote view successfully, that kind of makes you special. And being special can go to your head and lead to a kind of primadomina complex. Yep. Um, one of the things that I uh, point out in Mysterious World frequently is that parapsychologists, because of the skepticism that they are know they're going to be faced with, they actually have kind of been leading in terms of experimental design. I wonder if you could address that about how parapsychologists have to do experiments that are more rigorous than those that are used in other fields. Uh, for a long time, it's had a name change. The initial name was the Committee to Investigate the Claims of the Paranormal. And I was a member. I like what they did. I mean, they... they uh, uh, yeah. Psychop was the common abbreviation. Yeah, Psychops, exactly. And I went to the 20th Congress of Psychops, and Justin Gutz was there presenting. And so was uh, um, Ray Hyman, big skeptic. And, skeptic. and skeptical Ray Hyman said to this group of people at Psychops, do not underestimate parapsychologists. They are the best methodologists he's ever met. I went up to him afterwards because I know Ray. I said, Ray, took a lot of courage to do that. He says, yeah, but it's true. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And it is true. I've seen in uh, lectures, Jessica Utz say things like if you compare, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but like if you compare the evidence statistically for psychic functioning compared to the like the effectiveness of aspirin or something like that, off. <laughs> it's much better in yeah. for psychic functioning than aspirin works. Well, it's even worse than that. Uh, there was a uh, 1975, Charles Onerton was the head of the Parapsychological Association. And in his um, presidential address for the Parapsychological Association, he compared five years of psychological bulletin, which is the standard go-to place for publishing results in psychology experiments, compared to five years, the same five years in Paris, in the Journal of Parapsychology, right? Two things that came out of that, and unfortunately, it's, it's even more true today than then. He looked at replication rates. There was some, I forget the exact numbers, but the numbers that the, the, the psychologists almost never replicate anything or even attempt to replicate anything. Part of that's because big science doesn't want to pay for replication. They want new stuff. 
So I can't blame them too harsh for that. But of their attempted replications, almost none of them replicate. Yeah, this is a big crisis in psychology right now, known as the replication crisis. Yeah, and we are much better at it. Something like 50% of the published stuff in that that five-year period of the Journal of Parapsychology were attempts at replication. And over half of them actually replicated. We're in much better shape than psychology is. What do you think the biggest obstacles are these days or the biggest roadblocks to parapsychological research? Uh, I gave this grumpy talk and I have a picture of Pogo who says, we have met the enemy and they are us. Famous Walt Kelly cartoon. Yes, we we are the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Not In- our group, but the parapsychology group. For give you one example, the. It is really a, 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 a pat on the back for parapsychologists to be have their organization be a member of the American Association of Advancement of Science. Now, if I were designing the website, and I've been the president, and I've been on the board for an endless number of years, I have absolutely failed, and so has everybody else, to design the website as a science website. It should be blazing. AAAS membership, blah, blah, blah. And we do this sense. We do this sense. And here's our results. And oh, by the way, we're also interested in other stuff. It's the other stuff that gets the, it's appealing to non-science publications, uh, uh, not publication, non-science people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I would, I'm working with a bunch of neuroscientists and I say, do not go to the PA website. You'll be horrified. I won't let them go there. Mm. It's terrible. Go, go look at the parasite.org, which is the PA website. We'll have and, a link to it. Hmm? We'll have a link to it so people oh, can. That's so sad. <laughs> well, once you, you people got to get closure, you know, what's. Yeah, but they... the problem is most people do not. And when I get asked by newspaper, not you, but I do a lot of interviews. You're, you're the first interview I've done in some period of time. I've retired from being an interviewee. Because it doesn't lead me anywhere. And the questions that you guys in general, you're more informed more than anybody I've met. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Most, I, people, I, most interviewers are not. I try to now, do my homework. I appreciate it. That's good, but most don't. And the problem that you and everybody else has, including the scientists, who do you believe? Do you believe Ed May? Oh, my God. He's a defrock physicist and, you know, he works out of his apartment and all that. Or do you believe some scientists from Northwestern University? And the, and the only answer I have when people ask me that, what you need to do, that's a science question. If you want to know who's right in this argument, is it real, is it not real? Ask who has published what in peer-reviewed journals and what do they say? That's the only way someone coming in from the outside can decide whether Ed's right or, or some high skeptic is right. Okay. And I'm in a position in my career. Uh, I've just set off the lost stuff for archiving. I'm downsizing. And if anybody mentions Stargates beyond this interview, I'm going to shoot them dead where they stand. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm really honored that uh, you were able to have these discussions with us. I'd love to interview you in the future about Russian 
espionage because you're one of the few people who are who's really up on the Russian equivalent of our parapsychological program. Yeah, um, I was, but they've all gone stale now. I'm afraid, but I, but I do know them. Some of them who are still alive are yeah. good friends. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to tell us, or anything you'd like to plug? We'll have a no. link, by the way, to your uh, uh, to your author's page on Amazon, so people can check out your books. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, as I said, only one is really for the general public worth reading, and that's um, ESP Wars. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and a really stimulating discussion. I know that the listeners of Mysterious World will find it fascinating. So on their behalf, thank you very much. So that's the end of our interview with Dr. Edwin May on psychic research. Jimmy, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? We'll be following up in future episodes on some of the topics we discussed today. For now, I'd just like to say a special thanks to Dr. May for a very stimulating discussion, and also thanks to remote viewer Jimmy James for helping set up the interview. Excellent. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and viewer? Once again, we'll have a link to Ed May's book, ESP Wars East and West, also his author page on Amazon, uh, The Paper, Informational Psy, Collapsing the Problem Space of Psy, his uh, webpage, the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, also the uh, website he mentioned for the Parapsychological Association, and information on Joseph McMonagall, who we mentioned, and also that short video explainer on sidereal time. Excellent. And Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? Well, since we were talking about uh, stars in the sky and, uh, you know, uh, the galaxy, the center of the galaxy and all that, I thought I'd have a stellar theme for us. And also, you know, we were talking about research. Well, here's some research that you can do. It turns out that over a period of 70 years, 700 stars that we know of have vanished. They're in the old records. They're in old photographs of the sky that astronomers have. But when they've gone back and checked more recent photographs, over 700 stars are not there anymore. And we don't know what happened to them. And to find out what's... So we'll have a link to a video about that um, so you can learn about these missing stars. There's also a hunt to find more missing stars, to maybe help figure out what explains why they're not there anymore. And this is actually citizen science that you can help with. Uh, we will have a link to a website where, where you can join the hunt to find missing stars, meaning find places where they used to be, but they don't seem to be now. What happens is on the website, it will show you two pictures, an old one and a recent one. The old one has a target object, and all you have to do is say, okay, is it still there? Has it disappeared? Is there a problem with the uh, with the photo, but this is a case where just ordinary citizens can participate in scientific research by helping them figure out, is there a missing star in this case? Wow. Awesome. Might be well, fun for you and your kids, too. That would be fun. Yeah. Okay. Put them to work on some science. Get, get some uh, good use out of them. <laughs> so that's it from us. What are your theories about the parapsychological findings on the psychic phenomena Dr. May and Jimmy discussed? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 
4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. A lot of people have really been complimenting the new video uh, version of the podcast and all of the animation and inserts that Oasis Studio 7 has been providing. So definitely go by youtube.com and check out the video version. You can go directly to my channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And uh, check it all out there. And while you're there, please do subscribe and hit the bell notification so you get an alert whenever we release an episode. I'm trying to grow my channel, and I'd really appreciate it. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Well, uh, next time we're going to be talking about inflation. I have mentioned periodically on the show that the government causes inflation, and people have asked about that. How does the government cause it? Why have I said that? And inflation is back in the news, so next time we're going to be looking at the mystery of inflation. Excellent. Folks, remember to like this episode on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook and be sure to retweet it on Twitter. Help get the word out on social media. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial and religious needs. Visit FearventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, American Catholic History. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com history.